I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hands up if you've ever heard of the North Russian intervention or the Archangel campaign. Let's see now. There's one, two, three. Put your hand down, Johnson. We all know you've never heard of any such thing. Four, five, and that's about it. So not many. And that's hardly surprising. As far as the big events of 1918 and 1919 are concerned, it's usually found somewhere around Appendix Y of the last volume, second last paragraph from the end. So what was it all about? And what, if anything, does it have to do with Australian military history? Well, to answer those questions, while probably raising many more, we need to go back to possibly the pivotal event of the 20th century, the Russian Revolution. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. Greetings comrades and welcome to Australian Military History Podcast and apologies for the shocking, terrible Russian accent. Uh, Maybe I'll just do it in my usual soothing tones, hey? So before we start, a big thank you to Dane Carter for his kind words on Facebook. Ladies, Dane is a 26-year-old current serving member of the RAAF. He likes quiet walks in the rain, fluffy animals, and one day hopes to leave the RAAF and join the Defence Force instead. Just kidding. Thanks for the amusing banter, Dane. Always gets me right in the fields when a serving ADF member gets in touch. Thanks, mate. Before I kick off, as I said at the start, this is a fairly unknown event in Australia, and the lack of sources proves it. Most of the information, quotes, etc., relating to the Australian involvement has been taken from Michael Challenger's book, Anzacs in Archangel. If this episode sparks your interest in learning more, I encourage you to pick up a copy. It's well-researched, and the author has actually gone over and stomped on the very ground in which the Australians fought, giving him a pretty good idea of the conditions. So it's probably about the best source you're ever going to get on this topic. Except for this podcast, of course. And also, just a heads up, this episode contains long, complicated Russian place names, which I will no doubt butcher the pronunciation thereof. I'll do my best, but I apologise now for the absolute dog's breakfast that I know I'm going to make of it. Now basically, anyone who has had even the vaguest look at world history will know that in 1917, the Russians had themselves a revolution and became communists, and ever since they've been this slightly sinister, secretive bunch of people somewhere to the east of Germany, who liked the occasional tipple of vodka during the holidays. But the story of the transition from Tsarist Russia under the Romanovs to the brutal communist regime of Joseph Stalin is somewhat more involved than just a change of top dog. This is an Australian history podcast, so I'm not going to go into intricate details of the plotting and the scheming, the political experiments and personalities that all made things turn out the way they did. But in order to understand why three to 400 Australians were in northern Russia in 1919, I do need to give at least a reasonable account of things past. No doubt, if you want the full story, there are many other podcasts out there that will do it much better than yours truly. Anyway, onwards. By early 1917, the Great War was going terribly for the Russians. Millions of troops had been killed, wounded or captured. The supply systems were breaking down, and during the freezing winter of 1916-17, many troops had little food, warm clothing or ammunition. 
Many were reduced to eating the transport horses or any mangy half-starved animal they could get their hands on. Bread was scarce and what there was would usually be covered in mould and be inedible. Conditions weren't any better for most of the civilian population either. Most of whatever crops the farmers had managed to grow during the war years had been commandeered for the army and so the civilian population was also starving. Which makes you ask the question, if the population was starving because most of their produce had gone to feed the army and the army was also starving, what happened to all that produce? Corruption, profiteering and greed is basically what happened to it. But there were some Russians who weren't doing it so tough. The aristocracy, the nobility and Tsar Nicholas and his family and entourage were still well fed, warm and comfortable, thank you very much. For them, this whole war thing wasn't going so bad, and those soldiers should just dig a little deeper and fight a little harder for their Tsar. Now if you're one of those Russian soldiers, and you've just picked the last morsel of meat from the bones of a rat, and washed it down with some water from a roadside puddle, you may come to resent that attitude just a little bit, eh? Then, if someone were to come along, say maybe a bloke named Lenin, and start stirring up the possibility of overthrowing the Tsar, putting someone in charge who has actually maintained some threat of contact with reality, you're going to listen. And that's basically what happened. Lenin, with assistance from Germany, fermented glorious revolution, and in March 1917, Tsar Nicholas abdicated. His family went into a kind of house arrest and were eventually, uh, shall we say, permanently removed from the situation. This then obviously left a big hole in the top workings of Russian society. An attempt was made to form some kind of workable government and the Russian provincial government came into being, led by Alexander Kerensky. The new Gov and Kerensky vowed to keep fighting the Germans on the Eastern Front. In June 1917, the newly free and enthusiastic Russian army went on the offensive and was soundly defeated by a German counteroffensive. Once again, Russian troops were thrown into half-baked attacks without sufficient supplies of food and ammunition and it was the poor bloody soldiers who suffered for it. Obviously, this new setup wasn't going to change things on the ground. Not every Russian was dismayed by this revelation. Remember I said that Lenin received German assistance. The reason the Germans were helping him was they wanted him to get Russia out of the war. Now, with the recent defeat, Kerensky's position was weakened and the Bolsheviks, under Lenin, pounced and took control in October 1917. The Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic was born and within five months they had signed a peace treaty with Germany. Now, as I was researching all this, I got a bit confused as to who's who in the zoo. So hopefully, to simplify things, I'll take this opportunity to set the sides. Lenin was leader of the Bolsheviks, known in the upcoming civil war as the Red Army. These were the communists. On the flip side, although not yet a thing at this early stage, was the Russian White Army, opposed to communism and led by a general, Anton Denikin, with the intention of placing Admiral Alexander Kolchak as leader of Russia. So hopefully, as we go on, this will help you keep track of things. Now, for most students of Western history, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is where they lose interest in the whole thing. This now meant the Germans could transfer their troops from east to west and launch their spring offensive of 1918. So Western scholars' attention tends to focus more on that than anything further in Russia. But that, of course, doesn't mean that everything was sweet as a nut in Russia. Power needed to be consolidated. Lenin's only claim to leadership was that he was the one who got the ball rolling, so to speak, and he had the backing of Germany. But he needed to shore up that backing. Now, during the war, a group of Czech and Slovak soldiers fought alongside the Russians in a unit known as the Czechoslovak Legion. Although they fought alongside Russia, they were independent. When Lenin signed the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, he personally pledged that the Legion was free to leave Russia and make their way to the West to continue the fight against Germany on the Western Front. 
They were to travel the Trans-Siberian Railroad and embark on ships at the port of Murmansk. But the journey was slow, and during that time the situation changed, and Lenin obviously decided that allowing the Legion to go and fight Germany possibly wouldn't sit well with the Germans, and so he halted them. Leon Trotsky, Commissar for War, ordered the Legion to surrender their arms. The Legion refused. They defeated a local force of Bolsheviks and took control of the Trans-Siberian Railroad. This was the seed of the Russian Civil War, more or less. The defeat of the Bolsheviks created a vacuum in the north of Russia, and in that environment a couple of anti-Bolshevik groups appeared. Moscow, in what would become its modus operandi for the next hundred years or so, hit the crush revolution at all costs button. They proclaimed a campaign of red terror, rounding up anti-Bolsheviks, shooting hostages, and generally putting down any signs of non-compliance with communist dictates with extreme brutality. They reorganised the Russian armed forces and proclaimed them to be the Red Army. Meanwhile, up north, with assistance from British and US military missions, the White Army was formed to counter the communist threat of Murmansk and Archangel. From 1914 to 1917, the Entente powers of France and Britain had been ferrying military supplies to Russia to keep them fighting in the east. The main objective of the Gallipoli campaign was to knock Turkey out of the war and open up a fair-weather shipping route to Russia via the Dardanelles and the Black Sea. When that failed, their only option was to ship it over the North Sea and unload around Murmansk. By late 1917, there was a fair stockpile of weapons and ammunition sitting around Murmansk, and now the Russians were getting cosy with Germany. Britain and France didn't want all those goodies falling into German hands, so they needed to intervene in the developing situation in North Russia. They identified three objectives for the intervention. Prevent all that war material being handed to Germany, rescue the Czechoslovak Legion, and to expand the anti-communist forces in the area. Now, having slugged it out with Germany for the last four years and being up to their armpits in reorganising after the spring offensive, British and French forces were a bit light on for manpower, so they requested the fresh US forces to provide troops for what would be called the North Russian Campaign. In July of 1918, US President Woodrow Wilson agreed and the 339th Infantry Regiment was organised and sent forth. So things kicked on for the remainder of 1918. The German lines were finally broken and the British army, spearheaded by the Australians, and the French, assisted by the Americans, forced the German army back beyond the Hindenburg line. Germany sought an armistice and on the 11th of November 1918 she was all over. Now came the difficult business of getting the Australian troops home. The war had taken a heavy toll on shipping and so thousands of Australians were left sitting around France and England waiting their turn. It was during this period that things over in Russia were looking a bit grim. The Bolsheviks were moving north and having a few wins over the Whites. Now that the need to fight Germany was all sorted, the British decided to send a force over to Archangel and the British North Russian Relief Forces were formed. This was a volunteer force and the Corps went out looking for men who were willing. And this, my friends, is where the relevance to Australian military history finally comes in. Australia and the AIF didn't wish to contribute any units or material to the force but did give the men permission to sign on. To do so, they were required to discharge from the AIF and join the British Army. This they did and were allocated to the 45th Battalion Royal Fusiliers and the 201st Battalion Machine Gun Corps. As far as the 45th Battalion blokes were concerned, they formed two companies within the battalion and so managed to maintain an Australian character. The 201st just had the Australians scattered about. All up, about two to three hundred diggers signed on. It raises the question though, why? Why, after four years of dodging bullets and shells and all manner of horrors, would a bloke sign on for some more, just when the prospect of going home was just around the corner? 
That's a difficult question to answer, and obviously each man would have had his own reason, but a few general reasons can be discerned. Firstly, not all of these volunteers had been fighting for four years. Some may have been young fellows who had arrived late and missed out on most of the fighting. You wouldn't want to go home, never having fired a shot and not having any hair-raising stories to tell at the battalion reunions, would you? This was probably their last chance for a bit of, inverted commas, glory. A few, I'd say very few, had probably become addicted to war. Some people just come into their own during wartime, and maybe they just weren't done with it yet. They'd found their niche in life, they knew what was expected of them, and they were good at it. Others may have faced the prospect of sitting around for months, waiting for a ship home, doing guard duties, parades, and all that stuff, and thought, bugger it, might as well fill the time with a trip to Russia. And the rest, probably most who volunteered, faced the thought of going home with a sense of dread. What was waiting for them back in Australia? The same mundane life they'd had before they joined up? Back to the factory floor, the office, the farm? Back to where the camaraderie of the soldier's life didn't exist? Back to where the blokes who hadn't joined up will have advanced and would be your boss, your boss, when all they've done is sit at home while you've risked everything and maybe even earned a strike or three? That would have been a tough prospect for many to face. Better to delay it and go to Russia for a while. Under the command of Lieutenant General Frederick Poole, the expedition sailed to Archangel, arriving in late May 1919. As well as the British, including the Australians, the expedition also included troops from the United States, as previously mentioned, France, Italy, Serbia and Poland. Not to forget the white Russian forces already there. Opposing them were the Bolsheviks' 6th and 7th Red Army. Back in August of 1918, the Allied powers had taken control of Archangel, expelled the Soviets and had pushed inland, providing a handy buffer zone around Archangel. But the harsh North Russian winter set in, and, unaccustomed to fighting in such conditions, the advance stalled. Some minor skirmishes took place over the winter, but large-scale movement was all but impossible. But by the time the conditions eased, the Reds had managed to accumulate their superior numbers as well as heavy artillery. They began to push back. Also, by this stage, support for the White Russians back in Britain was beginning to wane. they just finished one war in Europe, and this one looked like being another long, drawn-out slugfest. Despite Winston Churchill, newly appointed Secretary of State, stating he wished to strangle at birth the Bolshevik state, newspapers such as the Daily Express disagreed, stating that the frozen plains of Eastern Europe are not worth the bones of a single grenadier. While the debate was raging, or more like smouldering, back in the old dart, the battalions containing the Australians arrived in Archangel on the 5th of June 1919. They spent a few days familiarising themselves with the town, taking in what tourist attractions were to be had. They visited St Elias Cathedral with its golden dome and spire, but by far the biggest surprise and the most welcome attraction was the Russian women who habitually bathed naked in the Dvina River. This was an old custom and the Russian men left them to it in privacy. But for a bunch of young blokes from the other side of the world, this kind of a display was just a bit too alluring and they'd regularly hang around for a look. That is, until a sentry was posted, with express orders to keep his back to the river and move on anyone disobeying the orders to stay away. Fortunately, they weren't in Archangel for long. Four days after arriving, they boarded the train to Oberserskaya, about 140 kilometres to the south. And if you think I haven't been practising saying that name over and over the last couple of days, guess again, I'm still getting it wrong. Oberserskaya was a strategically important centre. As you can imagine, in an area which spends about eight months of the year under snow and ice, permanent navigable roads are few and far between. Oberserskaya was cut by one of the few permanent east-west tracks in the area. Therefore, most freight 
either civil or military, needed to move through that town. The White Russians held it, and if the Reds wanted to move into and take control of the North, they needed to take it. Allied troops, mainly from France and America, had been in Oberzerskaya since the winter. They had done much to fortify the position and make it more comfortable for the winter. They constructed barrack rooms with gaps between an inner and outer wall which they filled with sawdust for insulation. They didn't give much thought to the summer though. By the time the Aussies lobbed, these barracks were just about unlivable, with the sawdust walls holding heat in the rooms with no real ability to allow airflow. Most of the men opted to live in tents. The front line was about 30 kilometres south of Obersuskaya. Shortly after arriving, the Australians were put to work in patrolling the area. Due to the thaw of the winter ice, much of the low-lying area was swampy, plagued with mosquitoes and most unpleasant. But the Australians still seemed to be enjoying themselves. One Australian, Wilfred Yeaman, kept a diary of their time in Russia, as well as a camera which he took with him on patrol. He described one such outing thusly, quote, We had to cross planking over a ditch. I waited with my camera for the first to tumble in. Bavistock walks right into it, and I get a snap of him feeling for his rifle, which is at the bottom of the ditch. We patrolled well behind the Bolshe lines, but we see no sight of him. But things were about to take a nasty turn at Oberseskaya. News had been received that a large number of white Russians had mutinied on another part of the front. They abandoned their posts to the Reds, sometimes even joining the enemy against their former comrades. This was kept fairly quiet in the hope that the whites in Oberseskaya wouldn't be tempted. Too late. An engine driver was seen to be acting a bit suspiciously, and so he was searched. They found a letter on him plotting the overthrow of the Whites. The plan was for two Russian companies to murder all their officers, surrender to the Reds, and hand over possession of the town. This was all supposed to go down in a couple of hours after the driver was searched. Alerted to the scheme, Allied leaders ordered those companies to withdraw from the front line under the auspices of a cholera outbreak so as not to tip off the mutineers that they'd been sprung. They were marched back to a railway cutting and ordered to halt. An Australian, Bavistock, the bloke who Yeoman had said dropped his rifle in the ditch, gave an account of what happened next. The companies were advised that their plot had been revealed and were ordered to identify the ringleaders. Not a single man moved. A Russian officer then said if no one speaks up, then every tenth man would be shot. Again, nothing. So making good on his promise, he counted off every tenth man and ordered them taken away by a Polish regiment. A couple of minutes later, the sound of the firing squad confirmed that the orders had been carried out. Just as a quick aside, this practice of taking every tenth man actually goes back to the Roman times, and it was known as da -da -da, a decimation. That's where the word comes from. Anyway, again, the Russian officer asked who the ringleaders were. Again, no one spoke up. But then, as the officer began counting off every tenth man again, two men crumbled and pointed out one man. That man was subsequently shot. This macabre scene went on until all the ringleaders had been identified and there were many executions. This obviously meant that the position formerly occupied by the mutineers was vacant. Some British troops requested that they be the ones to fill the gap, but the job was given to the Australians. They arrived on the 22nd of July and didn't have to wait long before seeing some action. The Bolsheviks attacked the following day, although it could hardly be called an attack. Unaware that the position was no longer held by mutinous Russians, they shouted out and called for the defenders to surrender. They must have felt some confusion when they didn't see hundreds of soldiers marching towards them with their hands up. Instead, they saw nothing. There was no movement, no noise, no shooting. They decided to come and have a look. They were somewhat more surprised 
when Australian machine guns opened up and their comrades began dropping. They put up a token resistance, but taken completely by surprise and not expecting to actually fight that day, they pulled up stumps and ran. For the Australians, it was a bit of a non-event. Wilfred Yeoman's diary recorded, quote, Our casualties only amounted to one rusky. Ends our flag in front of our tent, gets three bullet holes through, and the Aussie flag manages to get one. After tea, go to the pitches. End quote. It was all just a bit routine, really. Their next big event was a couple of days later on the 25th of July. Still unsure what was happening mutiny-wise, a large group of Reds were sheltering a few miles away in what was known as a slashing, basically a bit of cleared land used as a track. A patrol had discovered them without the Reds knowing. A party of 90 Australians from the Fusiliers and 9 machine gunners were sent out to deal with them. Working their way quietly down either side of the track, they managed to draw level with the Russians. Sergeant Charles Chiller Hill described the attack, quote, Then came three sharp blasts of the whistle the signal to charge. The boys sprang to their feet and rushed forward up the slashing and the surrounding forest, cheering and shouting at the top of their voices. The Bolo riflemen turned and fled into the forest, but their machine guns, of which there were five, kept up a very brisk fire until they were put out of action or the crew abandoned them. End quote. A British observer stated, quote, By sheer pluck and audacity, they drove them away in a colossal rout, killing about 30 and bringing in a few prisoners. Shortly after this, the Australians were brought back from the front lines as the Allies had more or less decided that the White Russians were a lost cause. Many Allied troops, however, were cut off from the main route of escape, and so an offensive was launched with the intention of opening up the road to allow the evacuation. This one came to be called the Divina Offensive, after the river in the area. As a quick aside, while these Australian troops were preparing for this very attack against the Bolsheviks, back in Australia, the Honourable William Watt, Acting Prime Minister, while Billy Hughes was still making his way back from Versailles, emphatically denied any knowledge of Australians fighting in Russia. So there you go, undeniable evidence that politicians back then wouldn't know if a bus was up them until the passengers began to disembark. Just like today's mob. Anywho, the Allied Column headed south on the 8th of August 1919, one year to the day after the decisive Battle of Amiens, but the Divina Battle would be much less glorious. Just south of the town of Yakveleskoy, the columns split into two, the Seltzen and Sluder columns. The plan was to take these two important towns on the Dvina River and then for the columns to meet up between the two. Most of the Australians were in the Sluder column, meaning they had about 10 miles further to travel. The ground which the Sluder column was to cover hadn't been scouted and no local knowledge had been attained. The entire area was in fact mostly swampland, with thick glutinous mud which made the going extremely tough. The mules carrying the heavy weapons were unable to continue, and so the machine guns were handed over to the already heavily burdened troops. In order to be able to carry more ammunition for the machine guns, many troops chose to leave behind rations of food and water, a decision they would likely regret in the coming days. They finally made it to their jump-off position late at night on the 9th of August. They expected cavalry to be in position to support the attack the next day. They weren't aware that the cavalry had decided the horses couldn't get through the swampy terrain and had turned back. Things were starting to look a bit ordinary. Scouts were sent out during the night, and when they returned they reported that the proposed route into Sluder was completely impassable. So the plan was altered, and instead of hitting Sluder from the west, the column would head south, take the town of Kochimika, and then turn north to take Sluder along a firmer path. They moved out at 6am on the 10th of August, and were in place outside Kochimika when... At 11.30, the British artillery opened up in a short but sharp half-hour barrage. 
I've not been able to find out how the artillery managed to get through, but the cavalry couldn't. But these things happen, I suppose. At midday, as the last of the shells was falling, the whistle was blown and the Allied troops charged. The artillery had somewhat unnerved the defenders, and as Private Ernest Heathcote later wrote, quote, they were terrified, and they completely got the wind up for a while when they were charged with bayonets fixed by the battle-scarred heroes of France and Belgium. End quote. Michael Challenger makes an interesting observation in Anzac's in Archangel. Whenever diarists mention bayonet fighting, they only ever use phrases like went in with the bayonet or the bayonets went to work or other such nondescriptive passages. We probably shouldn't be surprised by this. It would be fair to say that in war, the hand-to-hand, up-close fighting where you're sticking a bayonet into somebody with their blood spilling on you and seeing the look on their faces when they realise they've just been killed must be one of the most soul-destroying aspects of war. It's not like they're just a uniform off in the distance that falls down when you pull the trigger. This is much more personal. Little wonder that those who have had to do it tend to gloss over the horror of it. Kochimika was taken relatively quickly and easily, with the garrison surrendering. D Company, made up of Australians, led the attack, and then, with the town secured, they turned north towards Sluder. That was all well and good, but the Bolsheviks weren't done. Out in the river, they had a number of barges, and on these barges were men with rifles and machine guns. With only limited ammunition, the Allies couldn't exactly just sit on the bank and shoot at them until all the gunners were dead. But the road to Sluder ran alongside the river, meaning the barges could keep pace with the column, firing on them all the way. The best the Allies could do was to send a few machine gun bullets their way whenever the barges got too close. It was a dangerous cat and mouse game. But eventually, the column made it to the outskirts of Sluder, and scouts were sent forward to ascertain the red positions. Private Norman Brook from Melbourne worked his way forward and got a good look at the defences, but he was spotted and soon came under fire. Rather than bugging out before his job was done, he stayed and noted all there was to note and then fell back, still under fire. For this, he was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal. Not everyone was happy for him, though. A British officer, Captain Ulfrey, from A Company, later complained to his diary that all the medals from that day went to D Company. Poor dear. With the information provided by Brooke and the other scouts, a plan of attack was put together and for the second time that day, D Company stormed a town with fixed bayonets and took the garrison prisoners. A Company took the town of Lipovets. Unfortunately, the gunboats, which had been harassing D Company all day, were joined by some Bolshevik artillery to the north of the town and made the occupation of Sluder untenable. D Company fell back to join A Company at Lipovets. Now they could all finally get on with the second part of the overall plan, which was to head north and meet up with the Allies heading south from Seltzo. Unknown to the Saluda column, the troops trying to take Seltzo had not been as successful as they had. In fact, after five attempts to take the town, they still hadn't succeeded. This meant that far from squeezing the Bolshevik forces between them, the Saluda column advanced against a red force that could focus all of their attention on them. The Reds had landed about 100 sailors from the barges who had joined up with the other soldiers in the area. Together, they pushed inland with the intention of encircling the men advancing from Lipovets. The Allies took stock of their situation. They were low on ammunition, Lipovets couldn't be held and it looked like the Celso blokes weren't coming, so the only option was to bug out. By this stage, they had about 500 prisoners to contend with, as well as the civilian population of Lipovets. They obviously couldn't leave the prisoners behind, as that would increase the Bolshevik forces by 500, and the civilians would be able to offer the Reds assistance if they were also left behind. So some of the civilians were put to work carrying the wounded on stretchers. One of these wounded was Private Heathcote, 
the bloke who described the charge at Kochimika. He had been firing his machine gun at Bolsheviks who were trying to outflank the position at Lipovets. He was doing well until the Reds managed to drop a shell from a naval gun just in front of his position. His leg was broken and his ankle and elbow were smashed. The wounded prisoners and civilians slowed the column down somewhat as they made their way north. The Bolsheviks were in pursuit and closing in when the head of the column arrived at the only crossing point across a swamp, a bridge of rotten planks and logs. The rear guard set up some machine guns while the rest started to cross, but the Reds had caught up when only about half had made it across. They opened fire and near panic broke out among those on the bridge. Some of the civilians dropped the stretchers and the men on them into the bog and tried to make their escape. Some of the prisoners leapt off the bridge and found themselves stuck in the mud. Many drowned as the mud sucked them under. Those at the head of the column, who had made it across, set up a machine gun trying to provide cover for the remainder trying to get across. One of those on the crossing was Lieutenant Charles Gordon Lennox, more formally known as Lord Settrington, son of an English earl who had been a page boy at the coronation of King George V. As he was crossing, a Bolshevik bullet hit him in the chest. Arthur Sullivan, one of the rear guard, saw the young Lord crumble and fall into the swamp. He jumped in after him and promptly sank up to his armpits, but he still managed to grab the wounded lieutenant and pass him up to the others still on the crossing. While he was there, Sullivan managed to drag out another two fusiliers, while bullets were plopping into the sludge all around him. Undeterred, he saw another man wallowing in the mud, but he was beyond Sullivan's reach. But rather than give up and leave that man to his fate, Sullivan waded back, grabbed a broken piece of the bridge and reached out to the man who took the timber and was dragged back to safety. Only then did Sullivan allow himself to be pulled from the morass and complete the crossing. Unsurprisingly, he was awarded the VC for his actions. Needless to say, by the time the crossing was complete, the column was in a mess. There were now more wounded to be taken care of. Some of the prisoners and civilians had taken the opportunity to scarper, and quite a bit of their dwindling supply of ammunition had been expended. Probably the only thing they had going for them was that the Reds had seen what a debacle the crossing had been, and were in no mood to attempt it themselves while their allies had machine guns set up on the opposite bank. Of the two local guides who had been leading the way from Sluder, one had been killed while the other ran for the hills. With darkness approaching, but unwilling to sit and wait for the Reds to cross, the allies headed into the forest. In the darkness, and without guides, they became separated into two groups. Heathcote was in a group of about 40 soldiers and 80 civilians. One of the captives kindly offered to act as a guide but when he delivered them to a Bolshevik camp, he was shot. The camp was overrun, but the party had lost a further three men and gained another nine prisoners. They had run out of food and water and were very low on ammunition. With no other option available to them, they pushed on. For the next four days, they stumbled in a general northerly direction, sometimes avoiding Bolshevik patrols, other times engaging them, using up precious ammunition and losing men each time. By the Friday morning, after having not eaten for four days, they were attacked by a sizeable Bolshevik force. Heathcote described their position as pretty serious, but they were going to go down fighting. But just as the Reds were launching their final assault, Heathcote heard a cheer and some heavy firing, just before he lost consciousness. He woke up the next day at an Allied casualty clearing station. Turns out a group of about 60 fusiliers had stumbled across the position and overwhelmed the Bolsheviks. Talk about in the nick of time. The other Allied units also had a similarly rough time, but somehow the offensive was a success. The Reds had lost an estimated 3,600 troops dead, wounded and captured, more than half their strength in the area. 
Allied casualty figures were 145 in total, with only about 30 killed. Unfortunately, young Lord Strettington, despite Private Sullivan's efforts, was one of the 30. He died from his wounds a couple of weeks later. The other main front in the north was the railway front. Up to now, it had been quieter than Dvina, with troops predominantly involved in patrolling and reconnaissance activities. After their fun and games outside of Azuskaya, William Yeoman and other Australians headed over to that front under the command of an English captain named Curtis Lemon Snodgrass. Not that that's relevant, I just wanted to say his name. Snodgrass. Anyway. With the apparent success of the Divina Offensive, it was arguable whether any offensive on the railway front was necessary. Also, the decision to withdraw Allied forces had been made long before, so there was no real point. Except the White Russians insisted on it. They wanted the town of Yemsta, a strategically important town about 50 kilometres south of Obezaskaya. For the first time since the Allies intervened back in 1918, the Whites took control of the planning and control of the operations. They opted to have the Australians spearhead the operation. The Whites were a bit keen to get the ball rolling. So keen, in fact, that they began their artillery bombardment before the Australians had even left their barracks. The famed Cossack horsemen had agreed to loan Australians some of their horses to carry the heavy weapons and ammunition, which was kind and generous of them. Unfortunately, no one had consulted the horses. Unaccustomed as they were to being used as pack animals, the horses were reluctant to move. The Australians urging them on with English words was pointless as the horses were not bilingual. The only option was for Yemen, who had worked with horses prior to the war, to take a crash course in the Tartar language and eventually he and the horses came to an understanding. They left over Zaskaya on the 28th of August and arrived at their starting point seven hours later. The white artillery was still happily blasting away so the Australians settled in for a few hours rest before making their final advance on the town. In the low early morning light they worked their way to within 70 yards of the blockhouses before being spotted at about 5.30. The blockhouses were well sighted, allowing the machine guns to lay down a crossfire across each other's front. They opened up on the advancing troops. The thick vegetation and flying lead caused a bit of confusion. Yemen recorded, quote, New Bold takes the gun position we were supposed to take, and we take his. Yemen's group killed four bolos, wounded seven, and captured 40 prisoners, four machine guns, and a six-inch railway gun. A Victorian, Albert Bennett, had been a gunner on the Western Front before signing on for Russia. He got the gun working and shelled a Bolshevik armoured train that was heading that way with reinforcements and ammunition and successfully kept them out of the fight. The blockhouses fell one after the other, but the last one proved problematic. Its crew refused to give up and held on long after their comrades had thrown in the towel. While trying to work their way towards the blockhouse, several men were hit. Chiller Hill and Sam Pierce slowly inched forward under fire until they were close enough to lob Mills bombs, but the firing slits were too narrow to get a lucky bomb through and so it was obvious they needed to get closer. Hill stood up to move forward and was hit in the upper thigh. Some of the troops managed to pull him back to safety and stop the bleeding, although his leg was later amputated. Seeing his mate wounded enraged Pierce. According to Bavistock, quote, Pierce called for a pair of wire cutters and a bag full of Mills bombs. Laying on his back he hacked at the strands of barbed wire until he had cleared an aperture. Through this, he entered the open area in front of the blockhouse. He was seen to rush to the side of the blockhouse and to drop bombs into the interior. Explosions followed, and he was seen to move across when an unexpected burst of fire came from within. End quote. Pierce had been shot in the groin. Ben Williams rushed forward with the Lewis gun and sprayed the interior of the blockhouse, silencing any remaining reds. With the area now safe, he attended to Pierce, but it was obvious he wasn't going to make it. A bullet had severed his femoral artery, and he bled to death quickly. 
He was the only Australian casualty of the attack. Pierce was one of those blokes who I mentioned at the start who seemed to have become addicted to war. He landed on Gallipoli two weeks prior to the evacuation, fought his way through France and Belgium, was twice wounded and awarded the military medal at Ypres in 1917, single-handedly raiding a German machine gun. His commanding officer reported at the time, Normally this man is a runner, and throughout he showed an utter disregard of danger in carrying messages, guiding parties and bringing in wounded men on every return run. Clearly, by 1918, he'd done his bit, but it still wasn't enough for him, and so he volunteered for Russia. Instead of heading home and living out the rest of his life in peace, he died in front of a Russian blockhouse in what was already a lost cause. The blockhouses were the primary defensive position of Yemtsa, and with them taken, the town quickly fell to the whites. Over 1,000 Reds were taken prisoner, but the few who had managed to escape blew the rail bridge across the river, cutting off any pursuit. The Allies spent a couple of days making sure the town was secured before leaving the Whites to it. As he was heading back to Oberstaskaya, Yeoman heard a series of rifle shots from the direction of the woods outside the town. The Whites were marching prisoners into the woods and taking their revenge, Russian style. The railway offensive was the last of the heavy fighting for the Allies. The British War Office had sent General Rawlinson to North Russia to assume command of the evacuation of Archangel and Murmansk. He arrived on the 11th of August, a couple of weeks before the commencement of the railway offensive. With his arrival and the plans to withdraw announced, Bolshevik sympathisers in Archangel began to stir up trouble. They saw their opportunity to rise up and form the anvil for the Red Hammer to crush the invaders against. But British tanks, useless for fighting in Russian terrain, were handy in convincing the troublemakers that they would be long dead before the Reds got anywhere near the place. The victories on the Divina and railway fronts also served to quieten down the agitators. Yeoman and the others from the railway front camped outside Archangel for a few days as the snows began to fall, playing football, cleaning their kit and collecting firewood. Their withdrawal had been simple and uneventful. On the Divina, things were a bit more difficult. The river was at the lowest it had been for 50 years, so getting barges to the troops proved difficult. And despite the losses the Reds had suffered during the offensive, Trotsky still managed to regroup and kept engaging the Allies. The supplies and equipment in the area would be used by their Reds in the likely event that they overpowered the Whites. The few Australians still in the area helped the British destroy anything that could be of use to the Reds, especially around the town of Troister. It was 9th of September before they finally boarded the barges and left. Over the following days, the Bolsheviks maintained contact and some sporadic fighting took place. Olaf Anderson, a Danish-born sailor from Melbourne, was patrolling onshore when his section was held up by barbed wire and a machine gun. He rushed the wire, killed the gun crew, and only pulled back after being wounded three times. He was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal. By 23rd of September, all the Australians were safely inside the Archangel perimeter, awaiting the orders to embark the trains to Mamansk and home. Not wanting the pile of weapons, ammunition and stores to fall into Bolshevik hands, over the next few days, the Allies went about blowing up as much of it as they could. The War Office had directed that 100 of the most important Bolshevik prisoners were to be taken to Britain as hostages, to ensure that British prisoners in the hands of the Bolsheviks were well treated until a transfer could be organised. As it turned out, the Russians had actually treated their prisoners quite well. On 26th February, a 24-hour curfew was imposed on Archangel, with all citizens ordered to remain indoors. During the night, the 6,000 British troops in the town slipped away onto the troop ships, and when the citizens emerged at the end of the curfew, they were on their own to face whatever the Red Army had in store for them. The White Russians were left to face the Red Army alone. Being content over the previous 12 months to let the Allied intervention forces lead the way and conduct most of the operations, the Whites had not learned how to fight against the Reds. Poor discipline and a tendency 
to defect to the other side meant they were no match for the Red Army. The Reds launched an offensive on the Dvina Front in December 1919 and quickly crushed the Whites. Many soldiers capitulated and the remnants of the army were evacuated from Archangel in February 1920. On 20th of February 1920, the Bolsheviks entered Archangel and on 13th of March they took Murmansk. The white northern Russian government ceased to exist and all of Russia fell under communist rule where it would remain for most of the rest of the 20th century. Surprisingly, only two Australians died while fighting in Russia, Captain Alan Brown and Sergeant Samuel Pearce. Six were seriously wounded. Two Victoria Crosses were awarded to Australians, the only VCs to be awarded during the Russian campaign, as well as eight Distinguished Conduct Medals. So that's that. The Australian involvement in the Russian Civil War. Largely unknown at the time, and pretty much forgotten since. It was only a small involvement of a few hundred men, and it was a lost cause before they even got there. But they were Australian soldiers who upheld the reputation they and their brothers-in-arms had built across Gallipoli, France and Belgium, and they deserved to have their story told. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under amhpodcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.